Hello, everybody. This is our August HRO2 podcast. It's Jeannie Poole, Editor-in-Chief. I'm excited today to describe to you the papers that are in this issue. The first paper is titled Assessment of Oral Anticoagulation Prescriptions in Patients with Previously Diagnosed Atrial Fibrillation. The first author is Dr. Jeffrey Ashburner. The background for this report is that despite benefits of oral anticoagulation, many individuals, up to half, with diagnosed atrial fibrillation do not receive oral anticoagulation. This study is a secondary analysis of the Vital AF study. Vital AF was a cluster randomized controlled trial conducted in primary care practices with the goal to assess efficacy of AF rhythm assessment in patients 65 years or older using a single lead electrocardiogram in routine care. Eight sites were assigned to the AF screening intervention, while the other eight sites were randomized to usual care. Patients may or may not have had prior atrial fibrillation. In this secondary analysis, the patient population were those who had AF diagnosed prior to the index visit to their clinic. AF was diagnosed from a previously validated algorithm that used the electronic medical records for identification of AF by ICD-10 codes and whether the patient did or did not have a prescription for oral anticoagulation in the prior year. Also, the patients had to have an ICD-10 code for a 12-lead ECG with atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. Patients with acute precipitance for AF were excluded from the analysis. In the intervention group, patients recorded an ECG using the CardioMobile device, which allows for a 30-second strip. Subsequent care was determined by their providers. Single strips were also recorded from all further encounters. The CHATS fast stroke risk score and atria bleeding score was calculated for each patient. Prescription dates were identified to determine periods of time on or off of oral anticoagulants. The authors report that at one year, 2,250 participants were in the interventional group and 2,343 in the usual care group with a median number of three visits in each group. The mean age was 78 years, the mean CHADS VAST score was 4.7, the mean atria bleed score was 5, and 68% were taking oral anticoagulants at baseline. ECG strips were obtained in 72% of the eligible visits in the intervention group. Most, or 90%, had AF assessment at least once, compared with only 2.8% in the usual practice group. 40% of the patients in the intervention arm had equal to or one possible AF result. By percentage, the initiation of oral anticoagulation was similar for both groups, 17.7% versus 19.1% for the intervention and control groups, respectively. Oral anticoagulation was more likely in the patients diagnosed with possible AF, 26%, versus a normal ECG reading, 9.9%. Normal ECG readings were associated with a similar use of oral anticoagulation of about 7%. Discontinuation of oral anticoagulation was similar in intervention, 6.3%, and control, 7.2%, arms, with lower discontinuation with an ECG diagnosis of possible AF. The authors conclude that including patients with previously diagnosed AF in a point-of-care rhythm assessment strategy did not increase overall oral anticoagulation use compared to the patient being followed in the usual care arm. They point out, however, that the rhythm assessment result influenced both initiation and continuation of oral anticoagulation. The title of the next paper is Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation in an Ambulatory Outpatient Setting by Dr. Mark Wilcox and colleagues. 
These authors note that most AF ablations are performed in a hospital-based setting with significant utilization of hospital resources. Same-day discharge, however, has become increasingly common. This led practitioners at the Alaska Heart Institute to consider ambulatory settings for AF ablation. However, CMS only reimburses facility fields fees for ablation when performed in a designated facility, which is not an office-based or ambulatory cath lab, and this excludes Medicare patients from having an AF ablation performed in an ambulatory center. The Alaska Heart and Vascular Institute owns and operates a CMS-designated office-based hybrid cath EP laboratory with full anesthesia support and an eight-bed pre- and post-operative area. Since 2016, they have performed AF ablation as well as other EP procedures. In this paper, they report their AF ablation outcomes, including complications, post-operative utilization of hospital services, and emergency room utilization. The data were captured by chart review. The data were analyzed from 476 patients who had AF ablation with pulmonary vein isolation over about six years. The average age of the patients was 58 years with a BMI of 33, and Chads of ASC of 1.7. The ablation was the first ablation for 85% of the patients. The baseline AF pattern was PAF in 55% and persistent or long-standing persistent in the remaining. The majority, 85%, had cryoablation and the remaining 15% had RF ablation only. A primary outcome of major perioperative safety event occurred in 1.5% of the patients. Four patients had cardiac perforation with tamponade requiring drainage in the EP lab and then transferred for in-hospital observation and remained stable. Another three patients were admitted to the hospital because of suspected bleeding in order to have CT scanning done. Two of those three patients were found to have a retroperitoneal bleed and the source of the anemia and the remaining patient was not identified. There were no strokes, no CT surgery needed, no acute coronary syndrome, no pneumothorax, and no death. The secondary outcome of need for emergency or hospital services prior to discharge occurred in seven patients, two for groin care, and one required vascular surgery for a radial arterial line complication, and one was admitted for bradycardia. Two had delayed awakening from anesthesia and required vasopressor support, and one was found to have a pneumonia. Seven patients, or 1.5%, went to the emergency department within 24 hours of the procedure. The reasons included shortness of breath, groin bleeding, visual changes, chest pain, and bradycardia. ED utilization within seven days of the procedure occurred in 7.1% of the patients and between one week and one month in 5% of patients. The authors conclude that catheter ablation for AF in their ambulatory setting was feasible and safe and note that more studies are needed to confirm generalizability of their experience. The next paper is titled Comparison Between Weight-Adjusted High-Frequency Low-Tidal Volume Ventilation and Atrial Pacing with Normal Ventilation in High-Power Short-Duration Atrial Fibrillation Ablation, Results of a Pilot Study. The first author is Dr. Fabrico Basalo. The background for this study is that better contact force and catheter stability during atrial fibrillation ablation are associated with higher success rates. Also, changes in contact force and catheter stability are observed during respiratory movements and cardiac contraction. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the use of rapid atrial pacing and high-frequency low-tidal volume ventilation to improve the contact force and catheter stability and compare the outcomes to patients receiving a standard ventilation protocol. 
136 patients undergoing first AF ablation were separated into two groups, which was not randomized. One group of 70 patients received rapid HL pacing and high-frequency low tidal volume ventilation with 4 milliliters per kilogram of tidal volume and 25 breaths per minute. In the other group of 66 patients, all received standard ventilation. Ablation was conducted using 50 watts and standard parameters for contact force. In terms of the RF lesions, the authors followed the impedance measurements to identify gradual falls indicative of a lesion formation and using a dragging technique, stopping the RF application with a catheter jump. As the patients were not randomized, there were some differences in clinical characteristics between the two groups, with arterial disease higher in the intervention group. The authors do not report any procedural complications. Comparing the ablation outcomes between the two groups showed that there was a shorter time in the left atrium, shorter ablation time, and lower RF time in the group who had rapid atrial pacing and high-frequency, low-tidal volume compared to the standard ventilation group. There was no retention of CO2 observed during the high-frequency, low-tidal volume ventilation. The author's conclusions are that first, concurrent rapid atrial pacing and high-frequency, low-tidal volume ventilation acts additively to maintain the safety of the high-power short-duration ablation. And second, that simultaneous modulation of cardiac and respiratory rates provides a useful strategy to reduce left atrial total ablation and radial frequency times and also augments the lesion quality with better contact force and local impedance drop indexes. Next up is a paper titled Identification of Supraventricular Tachycardia Mechanisms with Surface Electrocardiograms Using a Convolutional Neural Network by Satoshi Higuchi and colleagues. In this study, the authors used machine learning and artificial intelligence to identify supraventricular tachycardias off of 12 lead electrocardiograms and compared the performance of a convolutional neural network against two experienced electrophysiologists, specifically to distinguish between AV reentry tachycardia and AV node reentry tachycardia. The patient population were those that had had an ablation between 2013 and 2020 for AVRT or AVNRT. The CNN was trained on 1,505 surface ECGs. The authors examined retrospectively 981 consecutive patients who underwent an electrophysiology study in catheter ablation at UCSF Medical Center between January 2013 and January 2020. Of these, 724 patients met the criteria for this study who had a clear mechanism of the SVT identified as AVRT or AVNRT. Raw ECG waveform data were extracted from the Pruka Cardiolab recording system. This included 10 seconds of the 12-lead ECG during sinus rhythm and SVT. All ECG data were split into the training group of 1,287 ECGs. Sinus rhythm for 630, AVNRT for 308, and atrial tachycardia for 82 and 267, or AVRT. And the test group of 218 ECGs, sinus for 108, AVNRT for 60, atrial tachycardia for 13, and AVNRT for 134. During CNN training, to address class imbalance, minority classes were upsampled randomly with different ratios of sinus rhythm, AVRT, and AVNRT. The CNN was trained and evaluated using labels of SVT mechanisms defined by the electrophysiology study and successful catheter ablation. The physician adjudicators read 200 ECGs, 110 drawn from the training set and 90 from the test set. 
CNN models were trained to predict the presence of each of the four diagnostic classes, ABNRT, AVRT, AT, and sinus rhythm. For CNN training, sinus rhythm was included as a fourth non-SVT class as an ancillary task, which served to improve overall CNN performance on the three target SVT classes of primary interest, again, AV, NRT, AVRT, and atrial tachycardia. Other details of the CNN methods can be found in the paper. The rhythm type characteristics included AVNRT, 89% with a typical form and 11% with an atypical form. AVRT, most were frequently left free wall accessory pathways representing 52%, followed by septal pathways, 36%, and then right free wall pathways, 12%. For atrial tachycardia, 58% of them were found to be right-sided atrial tachycardias, followed by septal atrial tachycardias in 26%, and then left-sided in 16%. Regarding the primary finding for the algorithm performance amongst the three SVT mechanisms, the CNN demonstrated the highest AUC in the test data set for AVNRT. Here the AUC was 0.909, followed by AVRT, 0.867, and then ATAC, 0.817. The authors then further describe adjustments made to explore different sensitivities and specificities, including for looking at short and long RP tachycardias. The authors conclude that in this study, the 12-lead surface ECG was used to train a CNN algorithm that achieved strong performance against gold standard electrophysiology study-derived diagnoses and comparable performance to experienced cardiac electrophysiology physicians. They note that larger data sets may be required to train deep learning-based algorithms across the full range of SVT diagnoses. The title of the next paper is Ventricular Tachycardia Risk Prediction with an Abbreviated Duration Mobile Cardiac Telemetry by Dr. Johann Lindeberg and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to derive a risk prediction model for VT episodes greater than 10 beats in duration detected on 30-day mobile cardiac telemetry based on using the first 24 hours of the recording. The monitoring device that was used was the Pocket ECG, marketed by Medical Algorithmics from Poland. 19,781 patients were monitored who had no VT equal to or greater than 10 beats in the first day of recording. Arrhythmias were algorithmically detected and manually verified by trained electrocardiography technicians. Candidate VT predictors were derived from the ECG collected during the index stay and included minimum and maximum heart rates measured as one-minute averages and mean heart rate overall, the prevalence and pattern of occurrence of premature atrial and ventricular complexes, sustained supraventricular tachycardia and sustained ventricular tachycardia, defined as four or more consecutive PACs or PVCs respectively, with heart rates of equal to or greater than 100 beats per minute or faster. The fastest heart rate was also recorded for any SVT or VT. Accelerated idioventricular rhythm, and finally, bradycardia 50 beats per minute or less, lasting one minute. The clinical characteristics of the population included a mean age of 65, with a range of 17 to 100 years. 43.5% were male. The mean monitoring duration was approximately 19 days. A total of 27% had a recording time between 1 and 10 days. Another 27% between 11 and 20 days, and 46% between 21 and 30 days, respectively. 
VT equal to or greater than 10 beats was identified in 7.6% of the patients after a median recording time of 10 days. In patients with VT equal to or greater than 10 beats, the median duration of the longest VT was 13 with an interquartile range of 10 to 258 beats. 93 patients had at least one VT episode equal to or greater than 25 beats. 20 patients had at least one sustained VT. VT equal to or greater than 10 beats were more common amongst men compared with women, 10.3 versus 5.6%. Next, the authors present their results of their prediction model discrimination calibration and goodness of fit. Of 28 potential predictors, 14 variables were selected in the full model and 16 variables were selected for an ECG-only model. Both models showed good discrimination in the testing sample with ROC curves of 0.76 for both. Observed events by predicted risk quintiles in the testing data set are reported for both the main and ECG-only models. For both models, the observed risk was within the range of predicted risk in all quintiles except for the third in which the risk was somewhat lower. All sustained VT events were detected in the top quintile of predicted risk for both models. In this top quintile of the risk score, a VT event with a duration of equal to or greater than 10 beats was detected in one of five patients. In the bottom quintile, the negative predictive value for the full model was 98%, for the ECG-only model was also 98%. While the authors performed the risk analysis as a continuum between 0 and 100%, they did also calculate the maximally predictive point based upon the Yodin method. With this method, the optimal cutoff for the main model was at a sensitivity of 70% and a specificity of 70% in the testing sample. For the ECG-only model, the optimal cutoff was 67% sensitivity and 74% specificity. Further, if they looked only at age and sex or only at the total PVC count, this discrimination was not as good with an ROC curve of 0.64 and 0.71 respectively. The final analysis was to look at those patients with a minimum of 14 days of monitoring. The main model showed an ROC of 0.75. The author's key findings are 1. A risk score based on variables from 24 hours of ambulatory ECG can predict a high risk of ventricular tachycardia equal to or greater than 10 beats within 30 days. In the top quintile of the risk score, a VT event with a duration of equal to or greater than 10 beats was detected in one out of every five patients. And finally, in 20% of ambulatory ECG recordings, VT events of equal to or greater than 10 beats can be ruled out with a negative predictive value of 98%. The next paper is a review paper. It is called Analysis of Risk Stratification and Prevention of Sudden Death in Pediatric Patients with Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, Dilemmas and Clarity by Dr. Jerry Bonaventura and colleagues. I'm going to read you their key findings as a great summary for this very nice review paper. First, recommending prophylactic implantable cardioverter defibrillators to pediatric hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients is a unique clinical situation and amongst the most difficult management decisions in cardiology. Second, the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology major risk marker strategy has proven highly sensitive in predicting arrhythmic sudden death events and utilizing the power of primary prevention implantable cardioverter defibrillators to prevent sudden death in young hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients. Quantitative risk scoring initiatives provide short-term estimates for sudden death events, potentially 
Useful in patient-physician interactions by offering additional information relevant to primary prevention decision-making. Fourth, prediction of sudden death outcomes by risk scores in pediatrics is not yet supported by prospective study data. And finally, modest overtreatment with implantable cardioverter defibrillators associated with current risk stratification algorithms represents a future investigative priority to improve patient selection. I encourage the reader to read this very nice review paper. The title of the next paper, which is a research letter, is titled Repolarization Parameters in Ventricular Arrhythmias and Takasubo Syndrome, a Substudy from the Ritako National Registry by Dr. Ravi Bazarani and colleagues. The authors looked at 106 patients with Takasubo Syndrome in a national registry in Spain. They looked at the first admission ECG for each patient. They compared a group of 13 patients who had at least one episode of a ventricular arrhythmia to 65 patients without a ventricular arrhythmia. Then they measured a series of ECG parameters. These included, first, the mean QTC across all leads, second, the QTD measured as the difference between the minimum and maximum of the QTC across the 12 lead, third, the T-wave peak point to T-wave endpoint, termed the TPE interval, using the precordial leads and using the longest measured value for this analysis. The authors found that, one, the T-wave peak point to T-wave endpoint, or TPE, interval is greater in subjects with Takasubo syndrome and ventricular arrhythmias as compared to those without ventricular arrhythmias. Second, the TPE interval had a better area under the curve for predicting ventricular arrhythmias in Takasubo syndrome than the QT interval. The ROC for TPE was 0.89, whereas for QTC it was 0.73. The authors conclude that the longest TPE interval in the precordial leads appears to be an easier and more reliable measurement than the classical QT interval corrected for heart rate for the prediction of ventricular arrhythmias and Takasubo syndrome. The last paper in this issue is also a research letter. The title is Impact of Psychosocial Risk Factors on Outcomes of Patients Undergoing Catheter Ablation for Ventricular Tachycardia with first author, Dr. Siddharth Agarwal. In this study, the nationwide readmissions database was analyzed from 2016 to 2019 to identify patients greater than 18 years of age undergoing VT ablation. Patients were categorized by the presence of equal to or greater than one psychosocial risk factor. These factors were categorized into five domains. First, limited cognitive understanding, second, substance abuse, third, psychiatric disease, fourth, low socioeconomic status, and five, uninsured status. 13,368 weighted VT ablation procedures were identified, and 48.4% had equal to or greater than one psychosocial risk factor. Low socioeconomic status was present in 23.7% of the patients, psychiatric disease in 22.7% of patients, substance abuse in 14.4% of the patients, lack of insurance in 1.4% of patients, and limited cognitive understanding in 1.03% of patients. A multivariate analysis showed that having equal to greater than one psychosocial risk factor was associated with a higher odds of recurrent VT-related hospitalization within 180 days, with an adjusted odds ratio of 1.53 and the p-value of 0.02. One or more psychosocial risk factors was also associated with a longer length of stay and lower odds of routine home discharge. The association was stronger for those less than 75 years of age and female patients, but was not associated with procedural complications. The author's key findings are, one, 
the prevalence of at least one psychosocial risk factor in a contemporary real-world cohort of patients undergoing VT ablation was 48.4%. The presence of equal to or greater than one psychosocial risk factor was associated with significantly higher odds of 30 and 180-day all-cause readmission, along with 180-day recurrent ventricular tachycardia-related readmissions. And third, patients with equal to or greater than one psychosocial risk factor had no difference in the odds of an in-hospital mortality and periprocedural complications compared with those without psychosocial risk factors. Well, that ends this summary of the August 2023 HRO2 issue. I hope you enjoyed hearing about these papers, and I'll be back in September with the September Issue Podcast. Thank you for listening.